All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Welcome to Let Us Attend number five. Happy New Year, uh, 2017. Okay. So last week, we finished with the three major litanies which come after the sermon. Someone asked me just to write up a little table to just explain the different parts of the liturgy, or to show, sorry, the different parts of the liturgy. So, for clarity, we could sort of split the liturgy into two parts, one part being the liturgy of the Word, which has the offertory in it and the readings. Remembering in Let Us Attend number two that we said the offertory used to be in the middle of what would now be the middle of the liturgy. And then the second part of the liturgy is the liturgy of the faithful. So if we just look at the liturgy of the word, in the first week we looked at the praise of preparation of the priest, and when the priest prepares the altar, the offertory, or the offering of the lamb, the thanksgiving prayer, the priest then comes outside and says the absolution of the ministers, which we looked at um, a few weeks ago. Then we had the Pauline epistle reading and the incense circuit, where the priest... Um, goes around the whole church. We have the Catholic Epistle reading. Then we had the Litany of the Sacrifices, which is prayed silently by the priest in the liturgy, if it wasn't said in Matins. Please refer to previous Let Us Attends on SoundCloud, um, if you don't know what I'm talking about. And there's actually notes from all the other ones. I just printed off some more. They're in the blue box at the back. Um, there's like 10 or so for each week, if you want the notes to go with the recording. Then we have the Acts reading and the instant circuit where the priest is at the front of the church. With the reading of the Synexarium, the Trisagion, which we spoke about last week, the Gospel reading and the sermon, which we spoke about last week. And then after the sermon, the priest stands at the veil, or the iconstasis, and he says a prayer, which we looked at last week, and we looked at the words. It's like a preparation prayer, if you want to call it that. And then after that point, he enters the sanctuary and doesn't leave until communion. Okay? And once he enters, the first thing that he does, that he prays, is the three great litanies. Now, commonly, those three great litanies are said silently during the reading of the gospel. That's why you might not hear them said out loud. So that's the liturgy of the word. Originally, if one wasn't baptized or was not ready to receive communion, they would leave at this point, and only those who are baptized would stay for the creed. But that doesn't happen anymore, like from many, many centuries ago. And the offertory, which is line number two, used to be part of the liturgy of the faithful because only the faithful would offer something, but that's now moved to the beginning. So then we have the creed, which we're going to start off with today. The prayer of reconciliation, which is, O God, the great, the eternal. The beginning of the anaphora, which we'll look at next week, which is the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. They are with the Lord, etc. The sanctus which is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your holy glory. And then the three parts, holy, 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 was incarnate, he rose. Institution narrative, this is in the coming weeks, which is he took bread, he, um, he gave thanks, he blessed, he sanctified, he broke, etc. The anamnesis, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, which is the remembrance of the death and the resurrection of Christ. The epeclesis, which is the descent of the Holy Spirit, when everyone worships God in fear and trembling, and the priest says, and this bread he makes into his holy body. So these are all exciting parts of the liturgy coming up in the next few weeks. Then more litanies after the epiclesis. Commemoration of the saints and the departed. The prayers before the fraction. 
lead us throughout the way, etc. Again, let us give thanks to God for he's made us worthy now to stand in this holy place, etc. The fraction, our Father, then the priest says the holy is for the holy and the confession, then there's Holy Communion, and then there's a prayer of thanksgiving after communion. So we're sort of about 40% of the way into the liturgy. We're at the creed today, okay? So before we start, just a couple of things. So there's a lot of people talk about something called liturgy after liturgy, which is the priest at the end of the liturgy says to you, go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you. So the question is, where are you going to? So you're going out into the world, and we go out in the world and we carry things from the liturgy out to the world. And we're going to look at some of those things today. So in the liturgy today, look out for things that we could carry over or out, sorry, to the world, to everyone. If we just read what Metropolitan Callistos Ware says, he says, This then is the aim of the liturgy, that we should return to the world with the doors of our perceptions cleansed. We should return to the world after the liturgy, seeing Christ in every human person, especially in those who suffer. In the words of Father Alexander Schmemann, the Christian is the one who, wherever he or she looks, everywhere sees Christ and rejoices in him. We are to go out then from the liturgy and see Christ everywhere. So we're going to look at some of those things today. Second thing before we start. Um, there's a text by St. Cyril of Jerusalem in the middle of the 4th century, which we're going to go through for the remainder of the series. All right. So I don't know if I spoke about this in the previous weeks, but just in case, I'll just say it again. So St. Cyril of Jerusalem... You had a program of catechesis for the people that were going to get baptized in Jerusalem. So pretty much during the 40 days of Lent, they would come to church every day and he had about, I think from memory, 18 lectures that he would give on the faith. It started off by, um, from memory, what is the faith, what is a good Christian, and then it goes through the creed, what is baptism, etc. All right? And then they get baptized on the Feast of Resurrection. Okay? So they get taught the faith in Lent, they get baptized in the Feast of Resurrection. And then for a whole week after, he teaches them about what happens in the liturgy. Because remember back in those days, if you're not baptized, you leave before the creed. So he teaches them what happens after the creed. So he teaches them after they get baptized. Why? Well, let's read now. Father Alexander Schmemann. O taste and see how the Lord is good. First taste, then see. That is, understand. The method of liturgical catechesis or teaching in the faith is truly the orthodox method of religious education because it proceeds from the church and because the church is its goal. In other words, taste and see and then learn. Experience and then let's talk about it. So he lets them first attend the liturgy and then he spends a whole week talking about what happened in baptism and what happened in the liturgy. Now that roughly is about 348 AD, which is awesome for us. Because that's right before there was such thing as Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, etc. It was just the church. And we get a very clear picture of what Christian worship used to look like pre-Chalcedon in the 4th century. So I've got a section of it today. And it's very similar to what we do today. We've got a section of it today and we'll carry a few of those sections with us in the coming um, weeks. Alright. So... If you open your books, please, to page 171. 171. 
So at this point, the priest has prayed the three great litanies. The next thing that the deacon says is en Sophia, which in English is, in the wisdom of God, let us attend. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Truly, dash. What's that dash mean? We believe in one God. So it's like the deacon starting you off. Truly, and then you go, the creed. We believe in one God, God the Father, etc. Before we talk about that part there, in the um, olden, olden days, <laughs> previously, and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I think they still say this, they would give a signal for people to leave if you're not baptized. Commonly, the signal could be something such as the doors, the doors. It's like, please go and let's lock the doors. Okay? Father Lev Gillet, who we had a quote from him last week, says something beautiful about this tradition and how we could still benefit, from, benefit something from it today. Okay? Let's have a read. Within our hearts, there are invisible doors which must be closed, spiritually, if not physically, during the celebration of the Holy Mysteries. At this moment, we must drive away from us every distraction, preoccupation, thought, or desire that is contrary to or simply foreign to God. So Father Lev is saying, although we don't say the doors, the doors, we should remember now, let's focus on the liturgy, let's close out the doors of our hearts to anything that's foreign to what we're doing right now. Okay? He continues. And conversely, there are doors that we should open in an invisible but real way within the depths of our heart. Let us attend, reads the text of the Holy Liturgy. So the deacon just said in Ansophia, let us attend. Let us attend means physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, everything, be attentive. Let us now be attentive to what is about to happen. And what you're about to do is to say the creed. So whenever there's something very, very important, the deacon says, let us attend. Let us attend, reads the text of the Holy Liturgy. Let us become open and attentive to the words and inspirations that come from God. The Lord addresses to each one of us the words he spoke over the deaf and dumb man, Ephatha, be opened. Then talks about the creed. The creed begins with the words, I believe. What does it mean to believe? It does not mean a purely intellectual assent given to certain doctrines. Belief requires an authentic act of faith accomplished under the influence of divine grace concerning revealed truths which are inaccessible to reason alone and which express an inner attitude of total trust and obedience. So you can't sort of talk someone into becoming a Christian. It's a matter of the head but also a matter of the heart as well. One can very hold correct beliefs yet be lacking in this inner attitude which constitutes saving faith. What in fact do we believe? We repeat the articles of faith and the ancient formulas of the 4th century, which is the Nicene Creed. And from these sources we can still draw new spiritual strength. It is necessary, however, that our belief in each of these articles, far from being a dry list of abstract notions, be rather an expression of the soul's longing for and movement towards God. So we say the Creed because everything that's about to happen in the liturgy can only be true if I believe... What I'm like, I can't, like, how could I approach the Eucharist if I don't believe in God? If I don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? I can't. So everything that follows depends on us believing the faith, in the faith, which is found in the creed. Now, we're not going to go through the creed, um, but maybe that could be done another time. But it's important when we're saying the creed. I, I feel like in Arabic, whenever the creed is said, everyone's saying it. Everyone? You know what I mean? 
in English, it's sort of like one or two people are saying it. So maybe it's good practice that we say we believe. You can't believe on behalf of someone else. So if you believe, you should be saying, I believe in one God, God the Father, the Pantocrator. And maybe we need to change the way we say it. You know how sometimes people say, we believe in one God, God the Father. Maybe we just need to say it properly. Like, we believe, like if we all said, we believe in one God, God the Father, the Pantocrator, creator of heaven. Like, maybe that would help. I don't know. We'll leave it to the deacons to figure that out. Okay? The same with our Father at the end. We always go, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. I don't know if that's like <laughs> conducive to prayer. Okay? So the creed is a big deal, of course. If anyone asks you what do you believe, you just, from the creed. Like I was in a course once um, at a college in the city, and the, the, one of the questions was, who is the Holy Spirit? And everyone's like, wind, fire, a presence. So they're quoting some biblical things. And then one of us said, the Lord, the giver of life. And then someone asked, where's that from? And we're like, the creed. They're like, oh yeah, the creed. I hadn't heard about the creed since I studied it, until I studied in Bible college. So in some churches, they don't say the creed at all. The creed has the basics of our faith. So we should have some understanding of the creed, but we should more importantly, or as importantly, we should be praying it in the liturgy, not just listening to it. Okay? During the creed, the priest washes his hands again. Now remember, he washed his hands at the beginning. Originally, there was only one washing of hands. The priest would wash his hands once, and then eventually he would offer the lamb. But because we move the offertory to the beginning, you wash your, the priest washes his hands twice. Once at the beginning, and once in the middle. While washing his hands, he comes outside, and he just rinses his hands, or he shakes his hands and drops some water on the ground, trying to say that he is innocent, like Amamitao says in your quote, by shaking his hands, the priest is signifying, I am innocent of the blood of whoever undeservedly partakes of the holy sacraments without letting me know. Okay, Just a reminder saying, I'm not, I can't have the guilt of someone who shouldn't be approaching communion, approaching without telling me. Okay, During the washing of the hands, the priest says the same prayers that he says at the beginning, which can be found on page 170, on page um, 174. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. The bones that you have broken may rejoice. I will wash my hands with innocence and go round about your altar, O Lord, that I may hear the voice of your praise. Alleluia. Okay? He says those when he washes his hands. Okay? And then he turns around. When you finish the creed, you go, we look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the age to come. He turns around, he looks at his fellow priests, and he says, I have sinned what? Do you remember? Absolve me. So, so to a priest, he says, I have sinned, absolve me. He turns around to the people, he goes, I have sinned, forgive me. If someone doesn't forgive him, he has to go sort it out. Unless the person is being a bit ridiculous and trying to hold up the liturgy. But there are, I've heard of one priest who someone said, I want to actually have a grudge against you, and he went... And they sorted it out in the side, and they came back and they continued the liturgy. Why? That's very important. That's what we're going to look at today. Today's all going to be about not holding a grudge when we go to the liturgy. Okay? No, could they, good question. Could they have waited till the end? No. We can't wait till the end. has to be done before the liturgy. Okay? That's what we're going to look at today. So then, if you look at page 175... 
Now we have the part of the liturgy which is called the prayer of reconciliation. The priest says, let us pray. The deacon says to everyone, stand up for prayer. Peace be with you all and with your spirit. And then the prayer of reconciliation. Let's read the first part. Everyone's heard it before. O God, the great, the eternal. So remember we said even if you didn't go to Sunday school and you just attended the... Thanks. And you just attended the liturgy, you'll get some really important parts of the faith. Right now, confirming God is eternal. O God, the great, the eternal, who formed man in incorruption. So originally we were created in a state of incorruption. And death, which entered into the world through the envy of the devil. So because of the sin of Adam, we are now all subject to death. You have destroyed, so you have destroyed death. So God has destroyed death. How? By the life-giving manifestation of your only begotten Son, our Lord, God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You have filled the earth with the heavenly peace by which the hosts of angels glorify you, saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Okay, so if you look at the whole section there, it's talking about peace being restored between us and God. So reconciliation between us and God through Jesus Christ. That's part of why this is called the prayer of reconciliation. Now let's uh, have some fun facts for a second. Who is the priest addressing during this prayer? You have destroyed by the life-giving manifestation of your only begotten Son, our Lord God and Saviour Jesus Christ. He is addressing the Father. So hold that point for now, okay? Just hold it. Come back to it in a second. All right? Now, if you look at your handout, Wisdom of Solomon, one of the deuterocanonical books found in the... It's originally part of our Bible, but you could find it in English in the Orthodox Study Bible. Chapter 2, verse 23 to 24. For God created man for immortality and... and made him an image of his own eternity, but death entered the world by the envy of the devil, and those of his portion tempted. It's just a, re- a biblical reference for part of that prayer there. So pretty much, O oh God, the great, the eternal, you created us in a state of incorruption, but death entered into the world. We're all subject to death. But you have destroyed death by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there is now reconciliation and peace between us and God. Okay? Then the deacon says, pray for perfect peace, Love and the Holy Apostolic greetings. Father Athanasius Iskanda has some from Canada, who has a little book, uh, booklet, PDF booklet on uh, the liturgy, says some very nice things about this prayer, which we'll just read. The deacon exhorts us to pray that we may obtain this peace from the heavens, God's perfect peace that surpasses all understanding. It is a different kind of peace than worldly peace. People of the world speak peace to their neighbours, but mischief is in their hearts, as said in Psalms. But our heavenly peace comes from Christ. Last week we looked at how we call Christ King of Peace. In his farewell discourse with his disciples, the Lord said unto them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. The peace that Christ gives us is not from this world, it is heavenly. It is the perfect peace that cannot be shaken by anything or anyone. And then... The deacon says in the prayer, for love and the Holy Apostolic greeting or Holy Apostolic kisses, Father Athanasius says, the act of reconciliation that we will be called upon to perform becomes impossible without love. That is why the deacon exhorts us to pray, asking that we may be granted love. Because after this, the deacon is going to ask you to greet one another with a holy kiss. So that involves love. 
Love is the greatest of all commandments. To love God and your fellow man is the fulfillment of all commandments. Christian love embraces all, friends, neighbours, acquaintances, even enemies who plot against us and seek to harm us. Christ paid, prayed for his killers, so did Stephen. God is love, and he who does not love has not known God. He who has no love cannot be reconciled to his brother. We pray for love that we may be able to exchange with one another the kiss of peace. The oldest of all Eucharistic rituals. So this greeting one another with a holy kiss is really, 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 really old, as we're going to see today. And the Coptic Church, the Ethiopian Church, Eritrean Church, Armenian, Syrian, etc., I think the Catholic as well, is one of the only churches that preserves this publicly. I think in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the kiss of peace is exchanged only between the priests, but in the, in the Oriental, it's exchanged between everyone. It's very, very ancient. We pray that the kiss we are about to exchange might be holy, without deceit or hypocrisy. So it's a real kiss of peace. It's not just turning around to the random person next to you and just touching their hand. Okay? The kiss is called apostolic because it was delivered to us by the apostles. St. Paul instructs us to share the kiss of peace, and a bunch of references there, and so does St. Peter. As usual, the people respond by saying, Lord, have mercy. Okay? So the first part, we speak about how Christ reconciled us to God. The second part, which we're in now, speaks about how we have to be reconciled with each other. What's the key word here that starts with K? Kanonia. Who's a Kanonia? Joey. Kanonia. Word of the series. Okay? It's all about Kanonia. There can be no communion if there's no love. So remember we said the church is Kanonia. In the Eucharist we have Kanonia with God and Kanonia with each other. For that we need peace. Okay? So what does the priest pray? He says, so as a response to the deacon saying, the deacon says to you, pray for perfect peace, love and holy apostolic greetings. The priest continues, according to your goodwill, O God, fill our hearts with your peace. Cleanse us from all blemish or guile or hypocrisy or craftiness and the remembrance of vice-bearing death. Make and make us all worthy, O our master, to greet one another with a holy kiss that without casting us into condemnation, we may partake of your immortal and heavenly gift in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then silently he says a glorification to the Holy Trinity. So put a triangle there if you have your own book. Through whom the glory, the honor, dominion, worship are due unto you with him and the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, who is of one essence with you, now all times unto the ages of ages. Amen. All right. God's, the first thing is that God, we ask God to fill our hearts with peace. So we could be reconciled with one another. What's guile? I looked up some definitions. Sly or cunning intelligence. Insidious cunning in attaining a goal. Craftful or artful deception. Duplicity, which I mean, think means to be two-faced. That's what guile means. Hypocrisy, we all know what that means. The practice of claiming to have higher standards or more noble beliefs um, than is the case. What is the remembrance of vice-bearing death? You know when someone does something to you, wrong, and then you just keep thinking about it and thinking about it until the grudge gets bigger and bigger? That's the remembrance of evil or vice entailing death. It's trying to say, let's get rid of all these things that cause problems between us. Give us peace so that we could greet one another with a holy kiss. Now look what he says. He says, and make us all worthy. Key word here is make. 
There's another three, two other times in the liturgy where the priest says, make us worthy, or you have made us worthy, which means that you can't be worthy on your own. God makes you worthy, but you have to want to be worthy. Okay? So you're never worthy. No one's ever worthy. I'm never worthy. No, no person is ever worthy. But if we approach with repentance, God makes us worthy. Then he says that without casting us into condemnation. So we're going to look at that. Why would we be cast into condemnation if we didn't greet one another with a true holy kiss? That's the question. Why is that a problem? We'll find out. That we may partake of your immortal and heavenly gifts. So that tells us the Eucharist is immortal and heavenly in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right? We're going to look at all that now. Then what happens is if you look at the sanctuary... You have the big cloth here, which is called the prosphorin. Prosphorin comes from the Greek word prosphora, which means offering. The priest and the deacon, remember this was cloth was put on the altar during the hymn, you know, so we'll save them in, and we go, the priest puts it on. Why did he put it on? Remember we said for two things. The first thing is he leaves the altar and goes around the church with the shoria, with the censer, so he has to cover it. Secondly, as a remembrance of the death and the burial of Christ. But now he lifts it up. Okay, So the deacon stands in front of him and they lift it up. All right. During this, the deacon says the command, greet one another with a holy kiss. So if we just turn to page 178. So the deacon then says to you, greet one another with a holy kiss. Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy. Yes, Lord, who are Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hear us and have mercy on us. Offer, offer, offer in order. Stand with trembling, look towards the east, let us attend. What's the interesting thing about this response? What does it mean by offer, offer, offer in order? Good question. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe in one of the texts I only had one. Is, the, is that a typo? Is that a yes? Oh, yay is like a formal Old English way I think of saying yes, yeah. Why, why do we say offer, offer, offer in order? Well, one Athanasius Iskander would, would say that because the offer tree was at this part, or a bit later, the priest will raise the cloth which comes from the word offering, and you're commanded to now offer after you've greeted one another with a holy kiss, your gift. So he would come around with the cloth or something similar and you would put your gift. So can I ask, is this got to do with like what Christ said in Matthew about um, leave your offer at the altar and then go, if you have something else as well, you've got to it, resolve it and then come? Exactly. So that's the key verse. We'll get to that in a second. But that's the key verse that surrounds this whole prayer here. Exactly. So... You're asked to greet one another with a holy kiss and then give your offering. That's why he says, offer, offer, offer in order. Now, we spoke about offering and let us attend number two. We spoke about it for like an hour. So if you've missed it, it's recorded. All the handouts are at the back, okay? So let's read from Father Athanasius again. If in the rituals of the offertory we proclaim the Lord's death and burial, it is in the lifting of the prosperian, the cloth, that we confess his resurrection. And since the spreading of the prosperin at the end of the offertory was a symbol of the stone that was placed on the door of the tomb, the lifting of it becomes an emulation of the angel who rolled the stone from the door of the tomb 
to proclaim the resurrection of the Lord. This is nice. This part that he writes is very nice. Now everything on the altar takes a new meaning. Remember we said that the pattern was, we could say it was like we're putting Christ in, in the tomb. He says, no more is the pattern the seed of the Lord's passion. Pattern is from the Latin pati, which means to suffer. It now represents the circle of the earth, Isaiah 40.22. The dome, which we looked at, So remember, on the altar you have the pattern and the dome on top. Okay, and the veil. So this is all on the altar when it's set up. So the dome or the asterisk, like the asterisk, represents the circuit of heaven. Job twenty-two fourteen. In the center of the pattern is the bread in the likeness of the sun, for it represents the risen Lord, the Son of Righteousness. Under the bread and surrounding it, filling the pattern, is a beautifully adorned veil. It represents the glory of the Lord filling the whole earth. It's a nice contemplation by Father Athanasius there. Okay? Then there's a quote by Father Alexander Schmemann on offering, which I won't read, just for your reference, in case you missed it a few weeks ago. All right? So let's just put all this in context. This is a very important part of the liturgy. The priest has prayed about reconciliation between us and God through Christ, death and resurrection of Christ, leading to reconciliation between us. We, are then, we then greet one another with a holy kiss, in the olden church before we offer the offering, but now we don't physically offer the offering now, that's okay. But we greet one another with a holy kiss before we move into the main part of the liturgy. The question is why? Like, and Fatin gave us a hint. The big question is why do we do all this? Let's read from the beautiful passages by St. Cyril of Jerusalem, 348 AD. Okay? I won't read the first paragraph, it talks about the washing of the hands. Because we read it a few weeks ago. I, would, I just put it there so you could read it if you want. Because Abuna washes his hands again. Now look at this. The year is 348 AD. Today is 3rd of January 2017. Look at the difference and look how we still do the same thing. Next the deacon cries. Welcome one another and let us kiss one another. So from the beginning the church has had this right. Where the deacon asks you to greet one another with a holy kiss. The question is why? And we're going to find out. You must not suppose that this kiss is the kiss ordinarily exchanged in the streets by ordinary friends. This kiss is different, for it affects a commingling of souls and pledges complete forgiveness. The kiss, then, is a sign of a true union of hearts and of the banishing of any grudge. Now, this is the why part. On account of this, Christ said, If when you are offering your gift upon the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift on the, on the altar. Go first to be reconciled with your brother and then come back and offer your gift. Key verse. If you're on the way to offer a gift and you remember, oh, I have something against my brother, drop the gift. Go make up with your brother, then come and offer the gift. Because if we're talking about the sacrament of forgiveness, if we're talking about communion, how could there be communion if there's a grudge? How could I approach the Eucharist if I have a grudge against someone. Hence why we have this prayer before anything, in the, before the main part of the liturgy. What do you mean by 
Oh, so in the, in the Old Testament, you will bring a gift, like an offering to the temple, like your first fruits, um, if you had produce, for example, a donation, etc. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The early church used to bring like bread, wine. If you didn't have anything to bring, and it's in the quote above, um, there was a water fountain outside of the church, and you would just fill up a cup of water, and you'll bring that in. You had to come with an offering. And, we, um, and in letters to 10 number 2, in the sheet, it explains what we mean by offering. So really important to go back to that one, um, just in case you haven't heard it yet. But So Christ is really emphasizing, and this is in, in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's not about the routine. It's about here. So if there's a problem with someone, you go and you reconcile. That's why the priest can't continue the liturgy. If he turns around and says, I've sinned, forgive me, and someone says, hold on, I have an issue. This is why we have this whole prayer of reconciliation. This is why we greet one another with a holy kiss. Let's keep reading. The kiss, then, is a reconciliation and is therefore holy. As the blessed Paul declared somewhere, saying, greet one another with a holy kiss, and Peter, greet one another with a kiss of charity. Okay? Now, Justin Martyr... 150 AD, even like 200 years before St. Cyril of Jerusalem, okay? Look what he says about the liturgy. At the conclusion of the prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. So this rite is really, really, really old in the church. And looking at these texts is nice because if you walk out to most of the Christian churches around, you might find people worshipping in different ways. But then you ask yourself, well, why do we do what we do? Well, this is what the whole church used to do. When Christianity started, all the churches had this. Okay, and then he continues to say what happens with the bread and wine, which we'll look at later. But I just put that paragraph to show that it's very, very old. Saint John Chrysostom: If you have anything against your enemy, get rid of your wrath, heal the wound, let go of your hostility, that you may receive healing from the table. For you are approaching the awesome and holy sacrifice. Show reverence for the goal of the sacrificial offering. The slain offering is Christ, and for whom he was, was he slain, for what purpose? That he might make peace between heaven and earth, to make you a friend of the angels, to reconcile you to the God of all, to make you an enemy and adversary a friend. So he's speaking about reconciliation. He gave his life to those who hated him. So after you know that, will you continue in enmity with your fellow servant? Hear at least what he says. When you offer your gift upon the altar, and standing there before the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift upon the altar, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then offer your gift. For this reason, at the very time of sacrifice, he recalls to us no other commandment than that of reconciliation with one's brother. Again, early reference to show that the church did this, and he really shows the meaning behind what we're doing. So in short... Make sure you have no grudges with anyone when you come to have communion. So if the grudge wasn't resolved, does that mean you couldn't have it? So it depends how we look at if the grudge was resolved. For example, if me and you have a grudge, and I've upset you, and I go up to you and go, Samir, I'm sorry, I really apologize. And you go, no, I, I just don't forgive you. What does the, the gospel say? Take a second person. and then take, If after, like, if you're, like, if I'm not willing to resolve the grudge, then the best thing to do is to just ask Abuna and he'll tell me not to have communion or not. I've always been taught never decide on your own to have communion or not because you might be so harsh on yourself that you keep away from communion for a long time. The best thing to do is to go up to your spiritual father and to ask him, Abuna, this is the situation, what do you recommend? But if, if I went and made effort to reconcile, I should approach the Eucharist. Okay?
Now, all makes sense? I find this really interesting. It's very nice. Okay. So, there's two options for the deacon. He could say the shorter, greet one another with a holy kiss, or the longer, greet one another with a holy kiss. Most likely this Friday night at the feast liturgy of the feast of nativity, the deacons will say a very long hymn called Azbazesti, which is this long hymn here. So as they're saying it, you could read it in English, and now you know the context. You know what it's all about. In the shorter version, the deacon told you, stand with trembling. Look towards the east, let us attend or let us be attentive. Let's see what he tells us about how our posture and our, inclin- and our behavior should be in the liturgy. Let's read the long one. Greet one another with a holy kiss, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, hear us and have mercy upon us. Then listen to this. Let us stand well. Let us stand reverently. Let us stand earnestly. Let us stand in peace. Let us stand in the fear of God, trembling and stunned. Have you read that before? Okay, that's intense. Not, sorry, I don't mean to be too sarcastic. Not, or that, okay? It says, stand well, reverently, earnestly, peace, in the fear of God, trembling and stunned. Okay? That's really important for us. Okay, I don't want to like probably talk about this a lot, but when, like, if you walk into any Catholic church, for example, people conduct themselves like they're stunned with trembling and in the fear of God. Sometimes, if we're going to be honest, we're a bit loose in the liturgy. If we really know where we're standing, we can't be loose in the liturgy. So I should really pick a spot to stand where I won't be distracted. My phone shouldn't be in silent. It should be off or on flight mode or not on my person somewhere else. Okay? I shouldn't be leaning. I should be standing well, reverently, earnestly, in peace, in the fear of God, trembling and stunned. Okay? And then he continues. O clergy and all the people with prayer and thanksgiving, with dignity and silence. Dignity and silence. So how many... What should I say in church? Only the responses, no other words, should be spoken during the liturgy. Raise your eyes towards the east to see the altar and the body and the blood of Emmanuel our Lord placed upon it. The angels and archangels are standing, the seraphim with six wings, and the cherubim full of eyes and covering their faces because of the splendor of his great glory, which is invisible and ineffable, proclaiming in one voice, praising in one voice, proclaiming and saying, Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your Holy glory, okay? So we could see reconciliation between us and God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, reconciliation with each other as a prerequisite for approaching the altar table, for approaching the Eucharist. We looked at why and how it's, we can't call this communion if we're not willing to have communion with each other. We looked at the verse in the Gospel of St. Matthew and then the deacon pretty much tells us how we should behave in church. I think this is heavy. I think we need to frame this and give it to people as they walk into church. Because if anything is... If there's one thing we notice... Uh, I don't mean to rant. But if there's one thing we notice, it's that we say, the liturgy is heaven on earth, etc., etc. Like, I'm, I'm worried that if someone walks in and doesn't know anything about our church and they hear that, they look at us and like, you're ragel. 
What are you talking about? Like you say it's heaven on earth. Meanwhile, everyone's talking. People are on their phones. People are walking in and out of the sanctuary like it's their house. There has to be a special reverence and awe. For example, a lot of people... And it's just the easiest example to use. Some people say, why can't I wear shorts in church? It's about the heart. Yeah, it's about the heart from God's end. Does that mean, just because it's about the heart from God's end, does that mean that I walk sloppy into church? Of course not. If the church has decided there's no shorts as the dress code, okay. And the, the kononi of the church has decided, no problem, I'll do it. It's not the end of the world. Even if it's hot, it's okay. Because I tell you what, when there's a wedding, all the men are in suits and there's no problem. Okay? And God forbid, when there's a funeral, the church is dead silent. True? And everyone's there on time. Which means that we are physically capable of being silent and being there on time. Okay? Point taken? All right. Before we move on to the last part, if you could just please turn to page 257. I forgot to mention actually that after the creed, the priest has three options. Option number one, pray the liturgy of St. Basil, which is commonly reserved for annual days. Option number two, pray the liturgy of St. Gregory, which is preserved for feast days, which you'll probably hear this Friday night. Option number three, pray the liturgy of St. Cyril, which is preserved for fasting days. Okay? I want to just look at the prayer of reconciliation from the liturgy of St. Gregory, because it's a more in-depth explanation of reconciliation. The priest says, O you the being who was and who abides forever, the eternal, co-essential, co-enthroned, co-creator with the Father. Who is the priest addressing? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the liturgy of St. Basil, the priest addresses the Father. In the liturgy of St. Gregory, he addresses the Son. That's why in the liturgy of St. Basil, which you hear every Sunday most of the time, the priest says, he looked up towards heaven, and when he had given thanks, when he had blessed, when he had sanctified, he broke. In the liturgy of St. Gregory, he says, you looked up to heaven, and when you had given thanks, when you blessed, when you sanctified, you broke, and you gave, because he's, talking to the, he's addressing his prayer to the Son of God. So you see this week, this Friday, sorry, if, if we follow the direct order, but sometimes we go back and forth, but if we follow the order of the liturgy of St. Gregory, the priest uses you. In St. Basil, he. Okay? Let's keep reading. Who for the sake of goodness only brought man into existence and of, out of non-existence and put him in the paradise of joy. So he's a ex- bit longer explanation of the reconciliation prayer of St. Basil. And when he fell through the deception of the enemy and the disobedience of your holy commandment, you desired to renew him and to restore him to his first state. So God saw that we fell. So what did he want? He wanted to restore us to our first estate, which is to be in communion with him, to live forever. Neither an angel nor an archangel, neither a patriarch nor a prophet have you entrusted with our salvation, but you, without change, were incarnate and became man and resembled us in everything except for sin alone. So if you never attended Sunday school and someone said, did the Son of God change at the incarnation? You would say no. You go, how do you know? Because it says in the liturgy, you without change were incarnate and became man. Next page. And became for us a mediator with the Father, and the middle wall you have broken down, and the old enmity you have abolished. 
You have reconciled the earthly with the heavenly and made the two into one and fulfilled the economy in the flesh. So economy, we're not talking about the stock market. We're talking about economy is like a word for the plan. The plan of salvation, you could say. And at your ascension into the heavens in the body, having filled all with your divinity, you said to your holy disciples and apostles, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. The same also now grant to us our master and cleanse us from all blemish or guile or hypocrisy or vice or craftiness and the remembrance of vice bearing death. Okay? Just wanted to read that as another example of a prayer of reconciliation. So before we... Sorry. Sorry. I'm not sure which John that is. I think he's a bishop. I think of a place called Bostra, but I'm, don't quote me. I'll, I'll find out and just confirm and, and I'll let you know next week. Pretty sure that, that's the John that we're talking about. So there's a few options for praise of reconciliation. And by the way, when we say the liturgy of St. Basil, St. Basil didn't sit there and author it from the beginning to the end. Maybe one or two prayers were taken from him, or maybe the prayers were inspired by some of his writings. Oh, good question. So, um, so right before Greet One Over the Holy Kiss, there's something called an asbasmos, which means greeting. Um, there's something called asbasmos Adam and asbasmos Watos. Okay? I think we've got time. As we started back. I wasn't going to go through this, but we might as well. What's Adam and Watos? Do you remember um, in Asheya we go, That's Wednesday to Saturday. But Sunday to Tuesday, we say, So Sunday to Tuesday are what's called an Adam day. I think it got the word Adam because the Monday Theotokeia starts with the word Adam. Okay? Wednesday to Saturday are known as Watos days. The, Thursday, the first word of the Thursday Theotokeia is Pivatos, Watos. Okay? Pivatos means the bush, but it's speaking about the burning bush. So these are two separate... Breakups for the week. The first three days are called Adam days. The rest of the days are called Watos days. On those days, sometimes you get to a hymn and it's like, if it's an Adam day, you say this hymn. If it's a Watos day, you say that hymn. The question is, why? <laughs> so the most convincing answer I've heard is that in Upper Egypt and Cairo and Alexandria, etc., they had little different traditions. So apparently... Upper Egypt was Watos or Adam, and the rest was something else. So when they wanted to create uniformity, they said, okay, we'll call half the days this, and half the days that. That's one of the explanations that I've heard that's a bit convincing. The, the um, Asbasmos before Great One Other Holy Kiss, which you commonly know as uh, Rejoice, O Mary, that's the one for St. Mary, but there's another one which I don't, it's not in this book which um, talks about Christ. So the, the deacons have an option to sing a hymn during that time, which is called an Asbasmus or greeting. And there's another one they could sing right before we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, heaven, earth, of holy, glory, and honor. Every season has a different Asbasmus. So for Kiach you have one, for Feast and Nativity you have another one. Cool? Okay, last thing for today. So we've, sp- we've spoken about, before we get to the end, This is, I really like this very long quote, which we'll share because we have about 10 minutes. All right. So we spoke about how the priest enters the sanctuary at the prayer of the veil. He says the prayer of reconciliation. 
recounting reconciliation between us and God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, calling us all to greet one another with a holy kiss because like Christ said, we can't approach the altar if there's a grudge between any of us. We looked at what it means, where it comes from. The question is, what does this mean to us when we leave church? So we've greeted each other with a holy kiss. How do we extend that greeting outside of the liturgy? So because we greeted each other with a holy kiss, the church, the liturgy is teaching us, you should be at peace with everyone. I turned around to Sam and I greeted him with a holy kiss. But what about if there's someone not in church? I should also extend that kiss of peace outside of church to people I know, to people I don't know, to the environment, okay? Because we are responsible for God's creation. So this is, what we, this is what I mean by liturgy after liturgy. The liturgy tells me, greet one another with a holy kiss, be at peace with everyone. I say, okay, I will now leave church and promote peace with people I know, people that I just randomly meet, people I don't know, and with the whole world. Okay? Father Alexander Schmemann speaks about this. It's very long, but it was longer. And I forced myself to cut a bit out. But let's see how we go. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It doesn't need heaps of explanation. This is the last thing for today. How can we love those whom we do not love? So Father Alexander is being very practical. He's like, the deacon said, pray for perfect peace, love. He goes, how are you going to love someone if you don't love them? What does that mean? If I go to you love someone that you don't love, what are you going to do? You're going to go suddenly, okay, I'll now go love them. Is it that, is it that easy? Is not the mystery of any love that it can never be the fruit of only the will, of self-education, of practice, even of asceticism? It's trying to say, like, we know that you can't just do stuff and say, I love someone. It has to be a bit more. Through the exercise of the will and self-education, one can attain goodwill. So you could be good with people. You could tolerate them, be even-handed in relations with others, but not love which Isaac the Syrian says is merciful to the demons. So he goes to some, Isaac the Syrian reckons, if you really love, you're going to feel sorry for the devils and demons, for the devil and the demons. And what then can this impossible commandment of love mean? There can be only one answer to this question. Yes, this commandment would actually be impossible and consequently monstrous if Christianity consisted only in the commandment to love. But Christianity is not only the commandment, but also the revelation and the gift of love. And love was commanded only because before the command it was revealed and given to us. Only God is love. Only God loves with that love of which the gospel speak. And only in the divine incarnation and in the unification of God and man, that is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, is the love of God himself, or better yet, God himself who is love, manifested and granted to human beings. So God showed us what it means to be love. In this is the staggering newness of Christian love that in the New Testament man is called to love with the divine love which has become the divine human love, the love of Christ. The newness of Christianity lies not in the commandment to love. It's not just about God saying love one another but in the fact that it has become possible to fulfill the commandment. This is the really, really nice part. In union with Christ, we receive his love and can love with it and grow in it. So it's not just about saying, all right, from now on I'm going to love people. It's about being connected to Christ 
And then because he is love, I am able to love people. This is really um, shown in the following verses. Romans 5.5 God's love has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. And through Christ, we have been commanded to abide in him and in his love. He says in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me you could do nothing. Abide in my love. That's a very basic life principle, Christian life principle. If you want to be more loving, if you want to be more kind, if you want to be more pure, rather than saying, all right, I now decide to just be more pure, I say, I will connect to the vine who is purity and I will try my best to be pure. Rather than saying, I'm going to love more people, I'm just going to really force myself to love people, I'm going to say, I'm going to connect myself to the vine. You know, anyone who do plant uh, gardening, the grandmother does some gardening, there's something called grafting, where you could attach a twig or a branch to a plant, and then it starts to grow together. We're branches. When we fall off a tree, we're just a twig on the floor. But we could be grafted back to Christ, okay? In union with Him. And then because of what he says in John 15, and because he is love, I'm actually able to love people. So it's not just about me trying really hard, it's about me being connected to Christ. To abide in Christ means to be and to live in the church, which is the life of Christ, communicated and granted to humanity, and which therefore lives through Christ's love, abides in his love. The love of Christ is the origin, content, and goal of the church's life, and this love is in the essence the only sign of the church, for all the rest is embraced by it, and like we see in John, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay? If we could just... Oh, we'll just read the last two paragraphs in the last three minutes. But then the assembling of the church is above all the sacrament of love. We go to church for love, for the new love of Christ himself, which is granted to us in our unity. We go to church so that this divine love will again and again be poured into our hearts so that again and again we may put on love, so that constituting the body of Christ, we can abide in Christ's love and manifest it in the world. This is important here. But that is why our contemporary, utterly individualized piety, in which we are egotistically separate from the, from the gathering, is so grievous, so contradictory to the age-old experience of the church. So sometimes people say, I'm just going to be a Christian by myself. Like, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Or I'm going to Christian, I go to church, but I don't like people. Or I go to church and I just leave straight away and have nothing to do with people. That's against the definition of what the church is. Remember we said the church is kanonia? You can't be in kanonia on your own. That's what he's saying here. Even while standing in the church, we continue to send some people as neighbours and others as strangers a faceless mass that has no relevance to us and to our prayer and disturbs our spiritual concentration. So I go to church, I have my friends, my brothers and sisters, I have people. The rest are just people. I know their names, I don't care about them, they're just talking or they distract me because they're there. Okay? Some people say, I can't go to church because there's too many people. Well, Father Alexander says some very direct words about this. How often do we seemingly spiritually attuned and devout people openly declare their distance for crowded gatherings 
which disturb them from praying and seem empty and quiet chapels, secluded corners, separate from the crowds. In fact, such individual self-absorption would hardly be possible in the church assembly, precisely because this is not the purpose of the assembly and of our participation in it. That's pretty direct. We forget that in the call to greet one another with a holy kiss, we are talking not of our personal, natural human love, even through which we cannot in fact love someone who is a stranger, who has not yet become something or somebody for us, but of the love of Christ, the eternal wonder of which consists precisely in the fact that it transforms the stranger into a brother, irrespective of whether he has or does not have relevance for me and for my life. That is the very purpose of the church, to overcome the horrible alienation that was introduced into the world by the devil and proved to be its undoing. And we forget that we come to church for this love which is always granted to us in the gathering of the brethren. Now, I apologize for the very lengthy quote, but I really, really held back like double the content. I could direct you to the book that has this quote. It's called um, The Eucharist by Father Alexander Schmemann. There's a chapter. It's called The Sacrament of Unity. But if you look at it, the church is the only place in the whole world that could claim what's just been said here. That said, when we come to church, it's not my friends and then just a bunch of faceless strangers, but we're all together as brothers and sisters. So that, I know last week I said we'll go up to the cherubim worship you and the seraphim glorify you, but as always, there's a bit more in the content. So we'll stop there. We'll stop there. That was a prayer of reconciliation. If you look at the first page, the next part that we'll go through is the beginning of an aphora, which is the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your heart, stay with the Lord. That's the beginning of the core of the liturgy is when the priest says, the Lord be with you. Okay? If you've got any questions, just hang around after, but we're just on an hour right now. Um, and then we could go through those. Are we still meeting next week, even though it's two days after Christmas? Yes. Raise of hands if you want to do next week still. Okay, we'll, we'll do next week then. Okay. Glory be to God forevermore. Amen. All right, let's pray. <clears throat>